Hi, I'm James Verdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, including the articles we discuss, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. And please do rate us on iTunes if you have a chance. It really does help. For this episode, I'm lucky to have two guests, Dr. Dan Hernandez of Carleton College and Erica Zavaleta, who's at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, they're here to talk about nitrogen pollution, which, as you'll hear, constitutes a major threat to biodiversity, despite not always getting the attention that other major threats do. And we covered a lot of ground in this interview, so let's get straight to it. Dr. Hernandez, Dr. Zavaleta, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. And to get us started, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of an overview of nitrogen pollution. You know, what are the major sources and how does it get into the environment? Nitrogen pollution is, it's a pretty variable and diverse thing. So nitrogen pollution comes from, it comes from smokestacks, it comes from automobile tailpipes, it also comes from fertilizer production and then the use of fertilizer in agriculture mainly. And then it comes from animal production because of the production of animal waste. So those are some of the major sources. And what that means is that some nitrogen pollution comes from the air. It goes into the air and then it comes out of the air into people's lungs and onto the soil. And other nitrogen pollution, other forms of it, flow into waterways and bodies of water and occur primarily as water pollution. And it's a really, really widespread and growing issue. It wasn't so much of an issue until after World War II, and uh, then with just the rise in industrial activity, in input-intensive agriculture, and so on, around the world, to varying degrees, nitrogen pollution has become a very widespread problem. Okay, and dealing with a pollutant that has such a wide variety of sources, you know, what are some of the challenges associated with that? You know, do we know where it's coming from in most cases? I can try and take this one. Sometimes with nitrogen, we do know where it's coming from because we can um, track the source. So the source may be um, uh, agricultural fields or um, another uh, animal feedlot or something like that. But other times it's harder to trace because it's coming from industrial activity over a large area. So it's really hard to trace the nitrogen pollution from an individual tailpipe to the nitrogen that ends up being deposited um, on a uh, grassland, for example. Yeah, I kind of wonder, does that pose any sort of management challenges? I think, like Dan said, it varies because sometimes it's pretty clear that there's a major point source, like a particular factory, that's contribu contributing a lot of nitrogen to a particular location. Um, and then in other cases, you take the entire San Francisco Bay Area, for instance, or the LA Basin, we know that nitrogen's coming from a huge variety of sources. And it, from a policy point of view, it's not gonna work to just tackle one or two particular sources, it's going to take a much more widespread um, change in, for instance, um, standards for um, tailpipe scrubbers or emissions controls or something like that to have an impact on overall loading. If I could, if I could add something to that, yeah. I, I think that um, it has similarities to issues of climate change um, because it is so widespread. Um, but it's different than climate change in that 
um, the nitrogen that's produced in a particular area has relatively local effects. And so any sort of policy change or behavior change to reduce nitrogen in an area can have impacts on the uh, direct surrounding areas. You know, in looking at that geographical perspective, are you finding different responses of species in different areas, or is the problem kind of ubiquitous? We are. The, the number of species affected in each region is really dependent on um, the sorts of species that are found in each region. The, the southeast United States has a lot of rare um, freshwater species, um, uh, mussels and fish and species that um, exist in the in the small streams in the southeast United States and southern Appalachians. Um, those species are strongly affected by the um, eutrophication that occurs from nitrogen deposition. So while the southeast United States is not the area of the country that is most heavily impacted by nitrogen deposition, the nitrogen deposition that is occurring there has a big impact on um, threatened and endangered species in that area. Okay, so a lot seems to come down to the species that are actually in the area and how vulnerable they are individually. Um, moving into the article a little bit, we're talking specifically about biodiversity, the loss thereof, as a result of nitrogen pollution. You started with a survey of Endangered Species Act listed species. What were you looking for? I think our main question was to understand how widespread is the recognition that nitrogen pollution is affecting species that are imperiled. So we knew of some individual case studies, but we wanted to survey the entire list so that we had a better understanding of whether this was something that was happening in a handful of cases or several dozen. And by looking specifically at the federal documents associated with each species listing, you know, we were really looking for recognition by the managing entity that nitrogen pollution is a problem rather than just understanding within the scientific community of the problem. Okay, and in looking at these listing documents, you know, do you generally expect to see sort of an overrepresentation of the danger of nitrogen pollution or an underrepresentation or you know, kind of how do these appear? I think the one nice thing about using the um, listed species documents is that it is um, a description of the existing impacts that are recognized for a particular species. So that includes um, all of the species that are known to be affected by nitrogen, but it is very likely an underestimate of all the species that are negatively affected by nitrogen, because in many cases, the impacts of nitrogen on threatened species or non-threatened species are unknown or undocumented. And are there any particular reasons for the underrepresentation of nitrogen's effect? Yes, because there are many different ways that nitrogen can affect species, and some of them are fairly direct. So, for instance, when you have nitrogen running into a stream and it's causing algal blooms and um, a decline in oxygen availability right there in that place where the nitrogen is coming in, you can connect that to mortality um, in a species that inhabits that stream. In other cases, you have a large urban area producing some nitrogen air pollution, it's blowing downstream with air masses. It's raining out gradually onto whole landscapes. And over time, that rain out of nitrogen accumulates in the soil, changes the composition of the plant community, and eventually that affects a butterfly or a particular insect. So when there's a long chain of causation like that, 
it can be much more difficult to recognize not just the proximate causes of the butterfly's decline, but also the upstream causes like the nitrogen pollution that's leading to those plant community changes. Okay, so you have these kind of complex causal mechanisms, and I'm wondering, are these reflected in the listings themselves? Well, we, um, in, in the listings, we looked for the various ways in which nitrogen could be affecting a threatened or endangered species. Um, direct toxicity was one um, pathway of, of nitrogen impact, but there were other pathways, um, like Erica mentioned, um, eutrophication, nutrient pollution leading to algal blooms that then ultimately lower dissolved oxygen levels in the water is one. Um, nitrogen pollution increasing the population of a non-native plant species that then outcompetes a threatened or endangered native plant species. And then nitrogen pollution that increases a non-native plant species and that um, affects the food source of um, an animal species. So those are the four different pathways that we observed in the listing documents. And some of them are relatively common and affect a wide range of species. Some of them are a little harder to trace, uh, the last one being the most difficult to trace, a, um, a effect of nitrogen pollution on the food source of an animal species is a really complicated chain of causation. And therefore, it's, it's likely um, more difficult to establish that link uh, for many species. You know, in looking at those difficulties, I was hoping we could move back to the bay checker spot butterfly, uh, which you use as a case study in your article, and I think is illustrative of some of the difficulties inherent in establishing those more complex linkages. I think we need to acknowledge the work of one of our collaborators, Stu Weiss, because he's been following the effects of nitrogen pollution on the butterfly via declines in the butterfly's host plant for decades now. And so he's really the one who um, initially hypothesized that this was what was going on, that nitrogen pollution in a very indirect way was affecting the butterfly. Um, he was able to look at just broadly whether there were relationships between, for instance, the distance from a freeway and the availability of that host plant for the butterfly. And what we wanted to do is to dig into really establishing the cause-effect link between the nitrogen pollution and the declines in the butterfly's host plant. So we did things like experiments in the greenhouse where we added the same forms of nitrogen that those serpentine grassland systems that harbor the host plant for the butterfly are experiencing and looked at how that nitrogen pollution affected interactions between this little native host plant species um, and the various invasive grasses and other invasive plant species that are benefiting from the nitrogen pollution. And we found that the nitrogen pollution makes it much, much more difficult for that, um, that relatively small, slow-growing host plant uh, to persist in the context of what's becoming a more and more productive, lush, shady um, grassland ecosystem because of all of that pollution. Okay, so that gives us some idea of what the lab work looks like in establishing these links. But, you know, what does the field work look like? Well, the field work is um, a mix of work that has been done by our group and by others in the past to establish um, what the impacts of added nitrogen in this serpentine grassland ecosystem, uh, what those impacts are. 
Um, and then also, this is a system that is actively managed to try and maintain habitat for this threatened butterfly. And the management in this system has been cattle grazing, and cattle grazing has been shown to reduce the abundance of non-native grasses and increase the abundance of the food source for the bay checker spot butterfly. So um, there's been a variety of experimental studies in the field to do fertilization studies and look at the changes in community composition of the plants. Um, and there's been studies that have looked at how the presence of grazing impacts that community over short time periods and over long-term studies um, to try and understand how management and this impact of nitrogen deposition might interact to affect the um, habitat for the bay checker spot butterfly. Okay, and I wonder, is this, is this sort of model of all these sort of integrated approaches uh, one that could be applied to other species in other areas? Absolutely, particularly those species that are affected by these indirect effects of nitrogen or even other um, drivers such as climate change. Considering um, there are studies that could consider the impacts of those drivers on the species, but also potential management strategies and how those management strategies may or may not um, be effective in dealing with the impact. You know, and speaking of those management strategies, one thing I took away from your article is that there's a large difference or potentially a large difference um, in the way that nitrogen might be handled and mitigated in some areas versus others. Um, so is that the case? You know, is this something that is being looked at differently in different areas, perhaps depending on, you know, their level of industrialization? I think that's right. And in some of the parts of the world that we're talking about where there are improvements occurring, some of that is also because of new ways of looking at how nitrogen affects natural systems in more integrated ways. So one very promising approach to dealing with nitrogen pollution is the concept of critical loads. And in Europe, critical loads are already being applied to help in a much more integrated way look at how much nitrogen pollution reduction is necessary to keep a system from getting pushed over a threshold. That concept of critical loads now is beginning to be applied in the U.S. as well. And that's really encouraging because it helps us set quantitative targets around how much we need to reduce pollution to overcome the negative effects it's having in a particular region. And I was hoping you'd give us some sort of idea of what you're studying right now or what's next for your research. Um, what's being looked at? Uh, one thing that we're um, looking at now in these serpentine grasslands is how management and nitrogen deposition may interact with climate change in the long term. So by carrying out these uh, long-term studies, we can look at how variation in precipitation as a result of drought or El Nino events may affect the way the system responds to um, cattle grazing and nitrogen deposition. And these sorts of studies are important because there may be variability in how nitrogen affects the system um, with variability in climate. And there may be changes in how effective the management strategy is as nitrogen deposition continues to increase. Okay, and a question I sometimes ask, and I think it's worth asking here, is what would you study, what research would you undertake if you had for instance, unlimited funds. You know, and I guess that's another way of asking um, what research questions or problems are not being addressed right now because the funding isn't quite there. I think that if I had 
unlimited grant funds or virtually unlimited funds to address this problem, there are two directions I would want to go. One is to support the establishment of critical loads for a much larger range of ecosystem types so that we can actually set quantitative targets for pollution reduction. And the other direction is that for this variety of pathways by which pollution is affecting biodiversity, I would want to tackle the question of what conservation and management interventions work, what's effective, and at what scales they're effective, and in what context they're effective. I think that there's often a lot of emphasis on understanding biological responses to stressors and environmental impacts, and less science directed at the question of what to do about it and how well it works to do various things. That's a great answer. Is you, do the, <laughs> you do the same thing with the same unlimited funds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, um, I think I'll let Erica speak on that one because I, I agree. I think that um, the, the need to study the impacts of management strategies is, is the big uh, gap in our knowledge right now. Um, there's a lot of management strategies that are being um, tested or tried in different systems, but um, studies that are carried out over the long term to understand how effective those management strategies are and which management strategies are the most useful and practical in a particular system is, is a real gap in our knowledge. And does that result from you know a lack of research dollars going into actually examining the results of the management actions? Yes, I think there's often there's a pervasive problem of insufficient funds for what gets called man, uh, monitoring and evaluation, and so part of the problem absolutely is funding. It's very very widespread this issue that people can raise funds to implement uh, an intervention, but do not also receive the funds then to follow up and watch over time and see how that intervention performs. Part of it is funding. Part of it is that there just isn't as much emphasis yet, I think, in the ecological community or the conservation science community on that science of measuring outcomes. I think that that approach has been much better developed in public health, um, in poverty alleviation, and other spheres of inquiry than it has so far in conservation. And that's something I think we need to fix. Great. And let's leave it on that call to action. Uh, Dr. Hernandez, Dr. Zavaleta, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.